The markets are trying to recover today with a few exceptions, including corn. After seeing commodity-wide selling pressure the last couple of days, now corn hitting new contract and three-year lows again this morning, with all three wheat classes and hogs also making fresh lows yesterday. Meanwhile, cattle are bouncing off of multi-month lows after some massive fund liquidation. Meanwhile, Congress is back to work with a long to-do list before the December recess and into the new year, including a new farm bill. And recently, the trade and legal courts have not been kind to the U.S. dairy and ethanol industries. We'll find out why. Live from November's home stretch via Farm Journal broadcast, this is AgriTalk. This morning, we begin with a conversation with Mary Kay Thatcher from Syngenta. Then it's Jeff Cooper from the Renewable Fuels Association. And later, Shauna Morris from the National Milk Producers Federation. I'm handsome newsman Davis Michelson. And now, filling in for Chip, on loan from Farm Journal's cast of several, join me in welcoming Michelle Rook. Good morning, Michelle. Hey, good morning. Thanks for that nice introduction. Absolutely. Um, speaking of yeah. introductions... Um, by the way, we're so glad to have you here in Chip's absence. Um, beloved listeners, Chip will be back in the morning. But that was quite the laundry list that you made in your introduction there. Yes, we have a lot to talk about here today. Mm-hmm. A lot of stuff happened over the Thanksgiving holiday, unfortunately. Some of it was not very good for agriculture, including the market. So mm-hmm. we're going to get into all of that. It's nice for me to be back on live radio. Man, I spent a lot yeah. of years doing live radio, and I just... I miss it. I miss there's, it. And I'm sure I'm going to feel that way after today. So there's something about it, isn't there? Yeah, there is getting mm-hmm. that old adrenaline rushing. And, uh, you know, Joe told me before we went on, you know, we've had a few stumbles <laughs> once in a while and we've always recovered. I'm like, sure. I have broadcast from every nook and cranny of the five state area <laughs> of the upper Midwest <laughs> and with shoestrings and whatever it mm-hmm. took to be on the air. So I can Duct roll tape with and it. bubble gum. Duct tape and bubble Absolutely. gum. Well, the good news is you have you have a built-in straw man here. If anything goes wrong, you can blame the handsome newsman. I've got broad shoulders. I can take it, Michelle. But I think you're so be so fine. glad you're I here. I think you'll yeah, be fine. You'll, you'll have to <laughs> help me out a little bit here. I doubt yeah. it. I doubt it. We're yeah, and I am on loan here. today huh? from yeah. Ag Day and U.S. Farm Report. So, if folks that aren't familiar with me want to know where in the heck did she come from, that's my call to. Farm Journal is a national news reporter and market reporter for AgDate. And so that's where I'm coming from today. Outstanding. Well, I've got some news here if if you're interested Absolutely. Let's get on with it. Sorry to interrupt you. Not at all. Well, a coalition representing farmers and ethanol producers has responded to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals decision to remand the rejection of six small refinery exemption requests to the U.S. EPA. The coalition expressed disappointment but stated their commitment to defending the renewable fuel standard and addressing the misuse of small refinery exemptions is a uh, is a priority there. And we'll have Jeff Cooper coming up in just a few segments here. Yes, Michelle? You bet. He will join us and talk about that and kind of the status of E15. Outstanding. Well, Michelle, late last week, a U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement dispute panel allowed Canada to continue restricting dairy access that the U.S. negotiated for under the agreement. The action came after an earlier panel ruled in January 22 that Canada had improperly restricted its access to markets for American dairy products. U.S. Trade Rep. Catherine Tai said two of the three U.S. MCA dispute panel members found that Canada's dairy import policies do not breach its commitments under the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement. That's the USMCA. Man, Michelle, two of three dispute panel members find the uh, import policies aren't a problem. I, yeah, I and that is, yeah. it's interesting because the first ruling actually went in the United States' favor, and then when Canada didn't really comply on the TRQs, then we came back with the second case, and now it went the other way. So we'll get into that coming up. Yeah, fourth segment, we've got uh, got some got some dairy chat coming up. In other news, Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack says his agency is making investments to strengthen American food and ag supply chains, expand markets for producers, and lower food costs. Vilsack says, quote, we're using these investments in ag producers and rural entrepreneurs to create better economic opportunities that bolster food supply chains across the country and increase competition. And Michelle, the uh, the funding watch continues on Capitol Hill oh, in yeah. just just fifty two days. Get this, 
funding runs out for, oh, I don't know, agriculture, the FDA, energy and water, military construction and veterans affairs, and transportation and housing, urban development spending bills, the rest of the government will be broke by February 2nd. We keep coming up to this point, Michelle, and yeah. honest, honestly, I have a hard time feeling anxiety about this. They have to figure it out. They'll figure it out. It's just a whole big circus until then. Do you share that opinion, perhaps? What odds do you give it that we will have a government shutdown? I mean, we've kicked the can down the road here several times mm-hmm. now. So Well, you, we'll, you we'll talk ask about... Mary Kay that, too. Yeah, I mean, and you talk about bubblegum and and duct tape to get the job done. I think that's that's what we're dealing with here. Irresponsible. Indeed. Well, an Illinois jury has found that several of the country's major egg producers conspired to limit America's supply of eggs in order to raise prices in a case that began in a federal lawsuit 12 years ago. Several large food manufacturing companies in the lawsuit filed in 2011 said producers used various means to limit the U.S. domestic supply of eggs, to increase the price of eggs and egg products during the 2000s. Michelle, this was a big story, the price of eggs. I mean, during the during the pandemic and in the, the year that followed here. Apparently, this goes clear back to the 2000s, though. I hadn't heard about this. Yeah, and that was um, probably about the time we started to see high pathavian influenza hit the United States. And so, mm-hmm. I don't know, there is another case that's pending right now. So, we'll see if this has an impact on that and sets right. a precedent. Well, gasoline prices in the United States have been on a 60-day consecutive decline, marking the lowest downward streak in over a year. Excuse me, the longest downward streak in over a year. The average price per gallon now, $3.25, more than 60 cents lower than the peak in mid-September, and about 30 cents cheaper than the same time last year. It's about time. Yeah, right? Well, Saudi Arabia is urging other members of the OPEC Plus coalition to reduce their oil output quotas to stabilize global oil markets, this according to Bloomberg. The OPEC Plus leader has been making a largely unilateral supply cutback of 1 million barrels per day since July. However, some members are resisting this call for further reductions. And efforts to refill the U.S. Emergency Strategic Oil Reserve, or the SPR, are facing delays as some companies, including Shell, Total Energies, and Chevron, have postponed returning borrowed barrels. These firms participated in an exchange program over the past two years, and while they were initially scheduled to repay the borrowed crude this year and next, they received approval to delay the returns until 2024 and 2025. And finally, just one more here. Oh, go on. Okay, go. No, I was going to say, hopefully prices won't be back up when we have to actually fill the reserve. Yeah, that's the thing. That's it's going to be yeah. going to be a timing thing. Beijing on Friday finally made a conciliatory gesture toward the EU by offering unreciprocated visa-free travel for citizens from Germany, France, Italy, Spain, and the Netherlands beginning in December this year. Travelers from these countries be, will be able to visit China for up to 15 days. Uh but it's it's interesting here. The uh the five nations are considered the core of the EU and drive much of its political and economic activities. Michelle, over to you. Okay, thanks for that. And, you know, coming up, we're going to have lots on the show. As we mentioned, when we come back, we're going to be talking with Mary Kay Thatcher. She is senior lead for federal government relations with Syngenta. We're going to talk about an array of ag policy issues, including that one year extension on the farm bill. And as Davis pointed out, you know, are we going to get the government funded here in time to avoid a government shutdown? That and more coming up. One billion dollars. That's how much the value-added milk segment has grown over the past five years. In 2022, Americans bought more than 440 million gallons of lactose-free and flavored milk, probiotic drinks, on-the-go smoothies, and more. Thanks in part to your Chekhov's innovation strategy, this emerging segment is outpacing the growth of all dairy alternative beverages combined, and that's making every drop count. Learn more at usdairy.com slash four hyphen farmers. The Port of Grace Harbor exports about 3 million tons annually. And the expectations are with the expansion that we'll be growing that by about a factor of two. So we're looking at potentially 6 million tons in the years to come. The United Soybean Board is behind rebuilding the infrastructure system across the United States because it helps us to be more reliable on air infrastructure, moving the soybeans from the farm 
down to the final customer. As we have increased economies of scale for export and improved infrastructure for bringing soy to elevators and soy meal from the elevator to the port, investment towards that all means dollars back in farmers' pockets. Learn more at unitedsoybean.org. The Scoop Podcast is where we talk about tight supply chains, emerging agronomic challenges, technology tools delivering ROI. I'm Margie Echelkamp, editor of The Scoop and host of The Scoop Podcast. Join me as I interview leaders from across the ag retail sector. Farmers are working hard for every bushel and their trusted advisors are by their side. Find The Scoop Podcast wherever you find podcasts so you are up to date on everything ag retail. Hello? Man, where are you? I thought you were coming. I can't. I'm in bed with the flu. <coughs> the flu? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Grandma's about to crowd, sir. Man, I'll call you back. Don't get stuck at home with the flu. A flu shot is safe, effective, and you can get it at the same time as your COVID-19 vaccine. A flu shot is the best way to prevent the flu and its potentially serious complications. Don't get flu FOMO. Learn more at GetMyFluShot.org. Brought to you by the AMA, CDC, and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Ag Day host Clinton Griffiths, and I invite you to join me each morning as we cover the nation's food system, from fields of green to orchards of orange and livestock everywhere in between. America runs on agriculture, and here at Ag Day, agriculture is what we do best. Listen as our analysts track the markets, learn about innovations in technology and sustainability, and live the country lifestyle through the eyes of rural America. Join me, Clinton Griffiths, for Ag Day, the country experience. We've cleared the schedule for you. Give us a call at 855-482-5524 and join the conversation. Welcome back. I am Michelle Ruckin for Chip Flory, and uh, he'll be back here. He's at the Milk Business Conference or going there today in Vegas. But we're so happy to have with us Mary Kay Thatcher, Senior Lead for Federal Government Relations with Syngenta, to talk about an array of ag policy issues, a dear friend of mine. And Mary Kay, first of all, let's talk about this one-year extension of the Farm Bill until September 24th. When I was at the NAFB convention, I kind of got mixed reaction from some of the ag groups about whether it was a good thing or a bad thing. I think, um, you know, we all want to know, Senate Ag Committee Chair Debbie Stabenow wants to get it done as soon as possible. How tough is that going to be politically going into an election? And, you know, how much of the bill has been written so far? What do they have left to do? Yeah, Michelle, you know, I don't know that it's um, it's going to be tougher this time than it was the last time, but I think you can look back in numerous trends of farm bills and it gets harder every four or five years. So I don't think we're really off trend here. Um, it is going to be tough. I think there is more partisanship, especially over the uh, SNAP program, the old food stamp program. And then now this year over this, this 18 to $20 billion in funding for uh, soil conservation initiatives that address climate change only. Uh, you kind of have a, a Democratic bent on that and a Republican bent. And we have got to figure out uh, an answer to both of those before a farm bill discussion can move forward. Yeah, and really, we're still hung up on disagreements on Title I funding overall, though, aren't we? Sure are, because, you know, it's going to take so much money to be able to increase reference prices. Uh, really? You know, you're looking at a 10% increase at $20 billion cost. Well, a 10% increase for corn and beans and wheat, it's not going to make a nickel's worth of difference. The market price is still much higher than that. And I don't know where we find $20 billion anyway. So um, I know farmers are, are wanting a, a, a better safety net. I think in the end, they may end up having to settle for just a really good crop insurance program. And hopefully we can find some new dollars that we can put in that to, to cover some of these disasters that have occurred that are sort of out of sight of the scope of the current crop insurance program. But uh, especially when you think about the cost, Michelle, for corn and soybeans versus the cost of raising a reference price for cotton and rice and peanuts. It's a world of difference. You could probably do it for those smaller commodities. I don't see how we find the money at all to do it for corn and beans. 
Well, I was asking Brad Doyle, chairman of American Soybean Association, if they had actually even done any sort of CBO scoring or anything to see how much that would cost. And it sounded like they hadn't. Um, so have any of the groups done any of that analysis? I'm not aware that anybody's done any, at least that they've released, but I think there has been a good look at it from people like Texas A&M and FAPRI and those kind of guys. And they, they are talking about $20 billion to raise wow. those reference prices 10%. Uh, and I think it's more like $50 billion if you want to raise them 20, 20%. So I just don't see how the money is ever going to come in line for those. I mean, certainly the, the leadership of House and Senate Ag Committee, Republicans and Democrats alike, tried for more money from the Budget Committee last year. Or earlier this year, and we're told no, and I don't see any different outcome next year. In fact, I think that we run a real risk that when the Congressional Budget Office, the office that does the the, the scoring, the how much might this cost, I think when they look at prices for next year, we might have even less money to work with to be able to uh, to improve a bill, and that'll probably happen mid March. So there will be, I think, a big push to to do something early, but then of course you run right smack into the fact that we have four appropriations bills that are gonna expire on January 19th that we're gonna to have to do something about or have a partial government shutdown and the rest of them February 2nd. So in reality, can we expect to get anything except appropriations bills done in the first month or two of next year at the very least? I, I'm doubtful. Yeah, and I don't wanna labor on this, but there's also talk about trying to update base acres. Again, how much of a heavy lift would that be and how much would that cost? It'll be a heavy lift. Um, it will cost a bit of money, um, but I think the heavier lift to the money is that there's winners and losers. Some states would benefit by updating base acres. Others would lose. Uh, quite honestly, you look at somebody like a John Bozeman is uh, uh, the senior Republican on the Senate Ag Committee. Uh, Arkansas isn't going to benefit by this. You look at Debbie Stabin now in Michigan, it's pretty much a wash. So I think that it's just going to be beyond Congress's ability to deal with a base update. Uh, because there are so many winners and losers and, you know, there's bigger ticket items that members of Congress are looking at. Nobody wants to go out and make an enemy. So I, I just don't see that as a, I understand the need for it. I certainly understand the need for looking at young farmers coming into farming and not having any base, but I don't see how we realistically deal with that this time. So you mentioned crop insurance, certainly agreement about keeping that and doing no harm. But what about permanent disaster? There's been rumblings about trying to attach that into the bill. Is that, you know, out of the question now or what would well, it I think do? there are absolutely, yeah, Michelle, people that want to do that. And understandably, I, I don't know. I feel like our strongest argument for crop insurance for years and years has been that A, Farmers have skin in the game. They pay part of the premiums where with disaster assistance, you do not. And secondly, that because of crop insurance, we're able to put out a lot less in ad hoc disaster payments. We're allowed, allowed to have them earlier payouts. I mean, sometimes this disaster occurs and it, it's three years before you ever get money for it. So um, I, I think every farm group that I'm aware of has said that maintaining a strong crop insurance program is their number one priority. And I think if that's the case, that it doesn't bode well for permanent disaster assistance. Yeah. When Ag Secretary Vilsack was at the NAFB convention, he suggested finding additional funding for Title I through the CCC Charter Act. Um, is that possible? Is that something Congress could look at? Oh, I think Congress could definitely look at it. You know, the secretary has a lot of ability to use those funds sort of as he sees fit, depending on what he uses for, uses them for different members of Congress will criticize him for that and say, oh, you should have had Congress's approval first. But I think it depends on, you know, how desperate do we get for really trying to improve that that safety net, that Title I ARC PLC payment. Uh, I think there are lots of things that the secretary has used that fund for and could use it for in the future. And it's going to be a little bit up to Congress on do they allow him to go forward with it? But he really doesn't need an authorization. He could he could cough that money up right now. And as you mentioned, uh, we're going to have a big crunch here to get these 2024 budget funding and approps bills done here before the December recess, before, you know, the first of the year here, before the other the uh, government shutdown starts to come into question here. Do you think we're going to have another government shutdown? What's your thoughts? It's entirely possible. You know, um, generally when we have these budget shutdowns coming, we, we put a deadline in that's just before the Thanksgiving holiday or just before the Christmas holiday, because 
you know, uh, members of Congress have plans with their families and they want to go home for those holidays and they want to be there. They don't want to get stuck in Washington. So it's a real incentive to cut a deal. But uh, they removed that incentive this time and they put it in the middle of January and early February when there aren't any breaks. There isn't going to be anybody that's just dying. I got to get out of here. And, you know, we, we couldn't pass it twice this fall. I don't see anything that looks like it's going to make it easier for January and February than it's already been. So I think we could easily face a shutdown. And beyond that, I think you add the fact that we had a new Speaker of the House, so they kind of gave him a little bit of a honeymoon period. I think the honeymoon grace period is over. And now he's going to have the same kind of problems wrestling that Republican caucus that that Kevin McCarthy had, that John Boehner had, that Paul Ryan had. I mean, I just think it's going to be a very difficult pull. Yeah. And then they're trying to get an aid package for Ukraine and Israel on top of all of that, too, aren't they? Very, very controversial about whether we do that. You know, you get the Republicans to say, well, I might be willing to do more, but I want to do something about the, the Mexican border first. The Democrats, generally speaking, don't want to do that. So uh, that's all a big problem, too. And, and then you get all of these, you know, you talk about various appropriations bills and, and, and authorizing bills. And, you know, people have thrown in abortion provisions or, you know, those kinds of uh uh, social issues into something that has no connection to it at all. And so then if you get an anti-abortion measure on whether it's an appropes bill or a, or an authorizing bill, then you further split the 435 members of the 100 senators on where they are. So it's going to be darn difficult to get anything done. And then, and then Michelle, I, I would... I would encourage you to pull up on Google and look at when is the House and the Senate going to be in session in 2024? They aren't in session very much, not very wow. much. And especially if you look at July 1 on, it's something like eight weeks that they're going to be in session from July 1 to December 31st. So yeah. how much work yeah. are they going to get done? Yeah, I know. That's why Stabenow wants to get this thing done before July and we get into election time. Um, pandemic assistance revenue program, are they going to have enough money to make payments in 2023 or is it going to get kicked into first quarter? I think they'll be able to make at least a few of the payments this year and uh, maybe some of it over. But uh, I know everybody are really, you know, turning over every stone they can to get that done. So I st I'm still holding out hope that at least some of the funding gets out. Yeah. And let me also ask you about this EPA proposal on the Endangered Species Act related to pesticides. I know it has been a concern, especially among soybean farmers. How much of a concern is it? I think it's one of the biggest concerns that I've seen come out of EPA in years and years. Really could have a huge impact. I know it's complex. Farmers don't spend the time to look at it, but this is looking at only 27 endangered species where they would make it either impossible to use pesticides or yeah. very costly. Thanks for joining us. Uh, great to have you with us. Mary Kay Thatcher with Syngenta. We'll be back with a look at markets coming up. Talking to your kids about the dangers of vaping can be hard. Getting them to listen to hot gossip is easy. So here's some drama you could share with your kid. Dude, did you hear about Cassie and Jake? No, but did you hear that vaping can cause irreversible lung damage and nicotine affects brain development? <gasps> Nuh-uh. You don't need to gossip if you want to have an open conversation about vaping. So if you want to get tips on when and how to talk to your kids, visit talkaboutvaping.org. Brought to you by the American Lung Association and the Ad Council. What is dedication? My biggest fear in the middle of my addiction was that my kids wouldn't have a father. And I started thinking, you know what? This isn't my story. I definitely had to become a better man to be a better father. It's important to me that my kids are empowered and truly believe that if, if they can think it, they can do it. That's dedication. Visit fatherhood.gov to hear more. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Time for Markets Now with the experts from ProFarmer. And back with us again this morning, Brian Grady, editor of ProFarmer. And Brian, well, we're trying to recover in the grains after a bloodbath again yesterday, at least in corn, but more contract lows there. What's the problem? Are we still seeing hedge pressure and liquidation here ahead of first notice day or what? Yeah, so just a technical breakdown, Michelle, and, and corn's really struggling right now. We don't have the uh, the export demand to fall back on in that market, and, and really, uh, you know, just no signals that uh, 
um, the prices are cheap enough yet. But uh, it, this is concerning that uh, everything else pretty much across the grain and soy markets and broader. Uh, this is a broad-based uh, rally in, in commodities today. Uh, outside markets are highly supportive, and, and so it is concerning to corn. We'll see if uh, by the close uh, this other market support can uh, spill over to corn and, and generate some buyer interest, but uh, definitely not happening here at mid-morning. Yeah, let's hope after three year lows here, we're due for a little bit of a bounce. What about the cattle market, man? That's been a bloodbath over there. Are we done seeing fund liquidation, do you think? Well, it looked like capitulation trade yesterday with the, the massive sell off and, and feeders, um, you know, just heavy selling in feeders despite weakness in the corn market yesterday, which is the first indication that, that it was capitulation. We're seeing a massive bounce back today uh, with really strong gains being led by the feeder cattle, but uh, also live cattle are participating. Now, when you look at it on a technical basis, it's an inside day up. And, and uh, so we still have a lot of work to do because of the, the recent technical, uh, heavy technical pressure that we faced. But commitment to traders report yesterday still showed funds are long. Do you think they got out of those late last week? Yeah, I, I do. And, and uh, hopefully they, they'll start to regenerate some of that length. All right. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Brian Grady, editor of Pro Farmer with Markets Now. If you served, we want you to get the health care and benefits you earned. We want you to come to VA. There's never been a better time to apply. Under a new law called the PACT Act, we've expanded VA care and benefits to millions of people who served and their survivors. No matter where you served or how long you served, check out va.gov pact to learn more about what VA can do for you and your family. Come, come to, to VA. VA. This is Andrew McRae, host of the American Countryside. I'm also a farmer and rancher from Northwest Missouri, and I hope you'll join me each week for Farming the Countryside as we take a look at the top issues impacting agriculture as told by the people farming and working in their industry. We'll talk about markets and trade, share some of the latest tips and trends for grain and livestock producers, and take a look at trends impacting rural America. Join me for Farming the Countryside on many local radio stations or on your favorite podcast platform, or just go to farmingthecountryside.com. Opinions expressed on AgriTalk do not necessarily reflect the views of Farm Journal Broadcasting, affiliate stations, or sponsors. In the morning, you're coffeeed up and you're thinking. In the afternoon, you've calmed down, but you're still thinking. We're here all day. AgriTalk. And welcome back to AgriTalk. I'm Michelle Rook and for Chip Flory this morning. And... Of course, we've had a lot of moving parts here and news on the biofuels front, um, including a fifth, corket, fifth Circuit Court decision on RFS exemptions or those small refinery exemptions and some movement on E15. And so I thought it'd be great to get an update this morning with Jeff Cooper, President and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. Good to have you along this morning, Jeff. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me, Michelle. Well, I know this morning, fresh off the wire, we have uh, farm groups like yourself, biofuels groups, and a coalition responding to this Fifth Circuit RFS exemption decision. And get us kind of up to date on that. Yeah, ha happy to. So just as as everybody was uh, putting their turkeys in the oven last week, uh, the Fifth yeah. Circuit Court, uh, which really covers the states of Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi, issued a ruling. They issued a decision in a court case uh, that, that's been pending for a while there. And, that, and they found in favor of six oil refineries who had complained or co claimed that EPA had wrongly denied their petitions for exemptions from the RFS renewable fuel blending obligations from several years ago. And so now EPA must reconsider the exemption petitions for those six refiners. Uh, and again, those were filed years ago. Um, and, and now EPA has to go back in time and, and reevaluate uh, if those petitions were, in fact, uh, inappropriately denied or, or if EPA did the right thing the, the first time around in, in denying those petitions. So we're obviously disappointed in that decision, but I think it's important not to overreact to it. I, I think this is uh, certainly not the final word on the small refinery exemption issue. I, I think it's probably not even close to the final word. Uh, there are similar lawsuits that are pending in, in other jurisdictions, other circuit courts. Uh, and most importantly, there's a, a lawsuit pending in the D.C. Circuit Court. 
And that's really where this all belongs. This is a, an issue. The RFS is an issue that is national in scope. The small refinery exemptions are, are national in scope. So we've always maintained, and EPA has always maintained, that these regional circuit courts are really not the right venue to be uh, stepping in and deciding the future of how small refinery exemptions are adjudicated. This this really belongs in the D.C. circuit, and there's a case there that we think will be heard early next year, and that's going to have that's going to help, I think, EPA and the and the industry really sort out where this all goes from here. We really don't see this Fifth Circuit Court decision having much impact on the current marketplace. These exemption requests are, like I said, from three to five years ago. And so we don't see this having much uh, much meaning as far as the day-to-day operations of, of ethanol producers and, and what's happening in the marketplace today. Yeah, there was a little market reaction, obviously, on Friday, but we had pretty thin trade, so it was hard to tell, you know, how much of a mover it was for that market. But, you know, you and I have talked about these hardship waivers before. A lot of times the rub is that they go to big entities, not, you know, the small refiners where they were intended to go, right? Yeah, that's correct. The criteria for a small refiner is 75,000 barrels per day or less of throughput but that's not that's not a company's aggregate capacity it's it's uh the capacity of individual refineries and so yeah there have been cases in the past where some of the largest oil companies in the world might happen to own a small refinery or two uh and because the, that refinery they owned is under that that threshold uh they were able to secure a small refinery exemption from the previous administration, and that really allowed them to escape or, or ignore their renewable fuel blending obligations. And so, you know, the, the current EPA, current administration has done a much, much better job Good. of bringing sanity to the small refinery exemption program and getting the RFS back on the right track. And things were going really well. Uh, and we're hopeful that this this latest decision doesn't do anything to interrupt that progress. Now, speaking of the administration, the White House now stalling on their E15 expansion plans. Um, that was requested by the governors of a lot of these farm states so that we can yeah. have year-round E15. Bring us up to date on that one. Yeah, so it was all the way back in March, Michelle, that uh, EPA finally got around to proposing to allow year-round E15 in eight Midwest states, and the governors of those states had petitioned the agency basically demanding uh, that they they have the allowance to sell E15 year-round. EPA, like I said, in March proposed to approve that request, uh, but that decision has never been finalized. And now we're seeing reports that it's the White House that is really sitting on that final approval. Uh, and we don't really know why. This was supposed to be all done a year ago. Uh, the speculation is that there are some oil refiners and some pipeline companies out there that are telling the White House that, hey, if you approve year-round E15 in these states, it's somehow going to lead to higher gas prices, and you don't want that in an election year. And we certainly don't see it that way. We think any cost impacts in these eight states would be negligible. And in fact, we know E15 is a lower-cost fuel, so any action you take to allow greater use of E15 is going to reduce gas prices for consumers. And so we're going to keep pushing the administration to get this final rule published, get it out the door so at least these eight states can sell E15 year-round starting next year. Uh, the courts are involved in this issue as well, Michelle. This, the states of Iowa and Nebraska have sued EPA for missing their deadline to finalize this rule, and there will be court proceedings around that here in the next few weeks, and, and hopefully that will help sort some of this out and, and, and get us some certainty as well. Yeah, it needs certainty because the last two years, at least, um, we have gone with these waivers. What every twenty days you have to reapply yep. for those in the summer? Yeah, that's right. It's and it's they've been emergency waivers that have allowed retailers to continue selling E15 the past two summers, and we haven't known until right up, you know, close to the beginning of the summer that that was going to be an option. And so it's really hard for retailers to plan. It's hard for our our producers to plan the entire supply chain is sort of sitting there wondering, are we or aren't we going to be able to sell E15 this summer? Uh, we need more notice than that. We need more permanence than that. And, and that's what this eight state uh, petition would do, at least for those states, it would give them the clarity that they can forever sell E15 year round 
um, at least in those states. And then we have to get to work on a nationwide solution, which we are doing that as well. So, Jeff, what about the status of the industry? You know, we have had a pullback in crude oil prices, but uh, we see ethanol production, I think, year to date is up like 6%. So things have really been turning around here, haven't they? They have. 2023 has been an excellent year for the ethanol industry. Um, We've seen a a very healthy supply-demand balance. You're right. We've seen our production increase versus year ago levels. Uh, We're on track to produce about 15.5 billion gallons this year. That would be the most since 2019, so pre-pandemic. And it's been a good year. We've seen uh, stocks at healthy levels. Uh, Demand has been good both domestically and internationally. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that we are expanding our use of higher level blends like E15 and, and flex fuels like E85. And that's why it's so important that the marketplace has the ability to sell those fuels to consumers who are asking for them all year long. Yeah. And car manufacturers, let's talk about EVs. They're kind of backing up their plan, saying it's costing them too much money, what to make these electric vehicles. I know you didn't think EVs were necessarily a huge threat to ethanol industry, but this is an interesting dynamic now, isn't it? Well, I I think we're seeing some reality set in, uh, in, in the electrification Area and and I think a lot of that we we've been sort of expecting for the last few years. We we've heard all the hype and, and all the you know predictions about massive electrification, and I think the hard realities are setting in that that it just can't happen nearly as fast as a lot of people wanted it to. Um, we're seeing automakers back away from some of those commitments. Uh, we're we're also seeing that they're losing money on every EV they're producing in in many cases. Um, and, and I think we're seeing that, you know, the first adopters in terms of consumers, uh, people who wanted an EV probably own one by now. Um, and, and so I, I think we're maybe beginning to see the top of that S curve in terms of EV adoption. Um, and, you know, we've been saying all along, look, if the goal of electrification is to reduce emissions from the transportation sector, well, heck, we can do that with with biofuels like ethanol. So let's right. not limit our options. Um, electric vehicles are fine. You know, if it works for you, that's great. Uh, but it's not going to work for everybody. And if the goal yeah. is to reduce emissions and reduce the environmental impacts of of our light duty vehicles, let's let, you know, let's give ethanol and, and flex fuel vehicles a fair shake too. Yeah. I got to ask you about the controversy with the carbon pipeline, you know, Navigator pulled out of the upper Midwest. You know, what does this mean for the ethanol industry? Will it derail any of these new projects for renewable diesel or sustainable aviation fuel? I mean, we're hearing the Jevo plant like in Lake Preston, South Dakota may not go forward now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it was certainly a, a disappointing development to see Navigator canceling that project. Uh, but I, I think as an industry, we are undeterred. Uh, in terms of of reducing the carbon intensity of the fuels we're producing. There are other ways of doing it. Certainly carbon capture and sequestration is a low cost uh, and proven technology way of of achieving lower carbon intensity. But there are other other ways, other technologies emerging uh, to help producers do that. And there are other CCS projects that are are continuing to progress as well. So uh, we're watching that that issue very carefully. We, we still believe that that ethanol absolutely will have a, you know, an important role, a significant role to play in sustainable aviation fuel. And, and like I said, we are not deterred from our quest uh, to reach net zero with ethanol. Okay. Well, good to visit with you and uh, appreciate your time this morning, Jeff. All right. Thanks so much, Michelle. Have a good one. You bet. Jeff Cooper with the Renewable Fuels Association out of D.C. When we come back, we're going to talk about Canadian dairy access and USMCA panel rejecting the TRQ fight, fight from the United States. We'll have that coming up. I'm Tyne Morgan, host of U.S. Farm Report. Join me each weekend as we explore the news and issues that matter the most to agriculture. We know this past year has been challenging in many ways, but as agriculture continues to adapt, we are right there with you. From markets to weather, each weekend we take a deep dive into what matters most. Join me each weekend for U.S. Farm Report, timely, trusted tradition.
Hey y'all, I'm Kelly Clarkson. Every American dreams of creating a better life for his or her family, but in some communities, those dreams face difficult challenges. When we come together to help those in need get the same opportunities as everyone else, we truly are making our country a better place to live for all of us. So look for volunteer opportunities in your community to help others achieve the American dream, all right? This message is courtesy of the United States Air Force. There's danger out there. It lurks on highways and quiet neighborhood streets. It's more likely to kill you than a shark and more terrifying than the biggest snake. Distracted driving claims lives every day. Every notification, swipe, social post, video, or selfie while driving risks your life. So while you might think public speaking or the zombie apocalypse is scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward. Don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Mom's early Alzheimer's diagnosis was hard to take. And when I left the oven on, we decided together that it was time to see a doctor and make a plan. Early detection gave us more time to seek out information and support as a family. If you or your family are noticing changes, it could be Alzheimer's. Talk about seeing a doctor together. For more information, visit alz.org slash time to talk. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. I'm Scott Wallen, Vice President of Media Relations with Dairy Management Incorporated, and I'm joined today by Barbara Bryan, who's our CEO and President of Dairy Management Incorporated. What's one thing you would want farmers to most know about the dairy checkoff? Thanks so much, Scott. You know, I think uh, for me, it's if not checkoff, who? Who would be doing the fundamental science um, to ensure you know, we're continuing to lift up the entire category, whether that's in nutrition, in new R&D, product opportunities, um, or in the on the environmental side. If not check off, who would be digging deep to understand and invest in, in what's next with consumers? Um, and not just millennials, who we spend a lot of time talking about, but Generation Z and the generation after that and where the boomers are going. There are so many new product opportunities, but it's not a one-size-fits-all. If it wasn't the checkoff who would be spending the time at retail serving as category captain or with food service, building these new menu opportunities. You know, we've seen the pressure on farmers. We've seen the pressure on the category from competition. If not check off who would be sort of fundamentally representing the category in a way that builds trust and drives sales um, over the long term. One billion dollars. That's how much the value added milk segment has grown over the past five years. In 2022, Americans bought more than 440 million gallons of lactose free and flavored milk, probiotic drinks, on the go smoothies and more. Thanks in part to your Chekhov's innovation strategy, this emerging segment is outpacing the growth of all dairy alternative beverages combined, and that's making every drop count. Learn more at usdairy.com slash four hyphen farmers. Hi, I'm Ag Day host Clinton Griffiths, and I invite you to join me each morning as we cover the nation's food system, from fields of green to orchards of orange and livestock everywhere in between. America runs on agriculture, and here at Ag Day, agriculture is what we do best. Listen as our analysts track the markets, learn about innovations in technology and sustainability, and live the country lifestyle through the eyes of rural America. Join me, Clinton Griffiths, for Ag Day, the country experience. Hey guys, it's me, Isabella Gomez, filling in for Smokey Bear because he's got more to say than just... Only you can prevent wildfires. Like, if you're outside enjoying a barbecue, don't let a hamburger distract you from fire safety. Make sure you aren't dumping your hot coals or ashes onto the ground because that could start a wildfire. So take wildfire prevention seriously and let's save the world one day at a time. Juntos con Smokey Bear, podemos hacerlo. Go to SmokeyBear.com to learn more about wildfire prevention. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. You're listening to AgriTalk, where the conversation begins. Join us at 855-4-TALK-AG. Welcome back to AgriTalk. I'm Michelle Ruff and for Chip Glory today. And we've had a jam-packed program here, but we're not done yet, folks. Uh, we are going to talk about dairy right now. A trade dispute settlement panel established under USMCA 
rejecting a complaint last Friday filed by the United States against Canada. That complaint pertaining to Canada's alleged improper limitation of access to its dairy market. And here to visit about that, Shauna Morris, she's Executive Vice President for Trade Policy and Global Affairs with the National Milk Producers Federation and the U.S. Dairy Export Council. Thanks for joining us to get us up to date on this really complex issue, Shauna. Thanks for having me, Michelle. Appreciate it. Yeah. So, like I said, it's a complex subject, but tell us about the USMCA ruling and why Canada is violating our agreement on dairy. Thanks for that. So, in a nutshell, what we've been looking for uh, through this case, as well as an earlier dispute settlement case that the U.S. brought against Canada over dairy market access under the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement, has simply been for Canada to live up to what they promised to deliver. Uh, the U.S.-Mexico agreement didn't deliver a huge new swath of dairy access, which made it all the more important that we actually had a chance to take full advantage of the access that it was supposed to be providing. It also cracked open a new door for us to be able to sell more products to Canadian consumers uh, versus other Canadian processors as the ultimate buyers up there to be able to expand the range of Canadians that are able to taste and get familiar with US brands. I, to say we were floored by the decision is an understatement. Uh, to us, it remains entirely clear that Canada has been playing games and intentionally working to hold down the market access from US dairy exports into the Canadian market under the agreement, uh, which is why it was so surprising that the panel uh, report declared somehow that the Canadians were in compliance uh, with at least the letter of the law here. Okay, so not just in violation of the TRQ agreement, but also they are dumping product into the U.S.? Right. Uh, that's an additional concern we have. Uh, so okay. this specific case was about the tariff rate quotas, uh, so market access for our exports. And in parallel to that, we've been watching with increasing concern as we've been seeing exports from Canada into the U.S. and into other international markets increase over the last few years. Uh, that's been specifically can the Canadians working to dump out a number of dairy protein products in ways that evade USMCA's disciplines on dairy exports. So I'm... Curious, you know, the first USCM, USMCA panel actually ruled in favor of the U.S. This panel did not. Why the discourse? The first, that's a really good question, right? Especially because there are two cases about what seemed to be a very similar thing. Um, right. The, the first case ruled on just one specific provision. Uh, so the U.S. won uh, and that panel decided to be very brief in what they ruled on. So uh, out of the host of problems we were dealing with on how Canada was handling its TRQs, all the way back to the first case, that panel ruled on just one item. So Canada went in and quite surgically said, okay, we'll make a tiny tweak here and we'll fix that one item um, and make an adjustment. But the problem is that left a whole host of, of problems still in place. Uh, we still weren't getting the fair access that we firmly believe the U.S. negotiated for in good faith under the agreement. That's why the second case was brought, uh, was to take a little bit wider lens and challenge the, a broader range of things that Canada was still doing that weren't in compliance with the agreement. One of the really big ones there has been to shut out retailers and food service operators from having access to the tariff rate quotas in Canada. So Canadian dairy processors um, get the lion's share of the duty-free imports uh, under USMCA for dairy products and retailers and food service operators, so restaurants in Canada don't have a shot at bringing in any of that product. So that really changes the mix of products and the motivation of who's allowed to be bringing it in on the Canadian side the upshot of that being we're not seeing these tariff rate quotas fill, so reach the significant, uh, the more significant volume levels that we expected to. And in this case, the panel came to a, a very narrow and frankly what we considered a wrong uh, conclusion on what Canada's obligations were. So what recourse do you have now? What can U.S. Trade Representative's Office, USDA, what can they do? 
that's exactly what we're looking through and analyzing. Uh, working with the legal team that we've been involved with, we'll be talking with USTA and USDR, as well as a number of congressional offices that have been such strong supporters on Canada, holding Canada's feet to the fire. Um, but we're evaluating that still at this point. Uh, there's not an appeal process under USMCA, so there's not a higher court level that we can take this to to say, these guys got it wrong, please take a second look, uh, which makes it a little bit more complicated in terms of what are those other tools that we might be able to take advantage of with continuing to press forward on this. Yeah, and I know U.S. Trade Representative's Office, USDA has been really in lockstep with you and trying to enforce USMCA. But what kind of precedent does this ruling and the ability, inability to enforce UMCA, what kind of precedent does it set? Frankly, a really harmful one, uh, which I think would be of concern to, to USTR and USDA too, right? Uh, this agreement certainly is about dairy, but it's about a whole lot more than that too. Uh, having panel reports like this uh, that takes such an exceedingly narrow view of what the obligations of the parties are under it certainly can't be helpful for the wider range of obligations that U.S., Mexico, and Canada have all committed themselves to here. Um, so certainly we think it's a, a, a wrong call. Uh, it was a bad day for us uh, since the bad guys won on the Canadian side here. Yeah. Uh, but we think it sets a, a pretty concerning precedent for others that are going to need to make use of the dispute supplement system under USMCA in the future, too. Well, definitely one we'll watch. For thanks so much for joining us, Shauna Morris. She's with the National Milk Producers Federation and the U.S. Dairy Export Council. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Michelle. You bet. And again, um, we're going to wrap up the program here. I know that Chip is going to be back, I think, this afternoon. Or, Davis, are you hosting? Um, I will be hosting this afternoon. That's and, right. Uh, okay. I'm going to be doing news. With... That's right. That's right. We'll, uh, we'll do you the You and I are switching story. spots. Andy Schisler uh, this afternoon from SNW Trading. I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, Michelle, take us home. Oh, that's right. Well, you know, looking at uh, the day. If you're living with diabetes and using insulin, you know the pain of pricking your fingers over and over again. By wearing a small remote device called a continuous glucose monitor or CGM, you can reduce the pain of pricking your fingers right away. If you're testing your blood sugar four or more times per day, injecting insulin three or more times per day, or using an insulin pump, call the Diabetic Health Hotline today and learn about the latest CGM technology. A CGM can immediately reduce pain. It's accurate, easy to use, and helps you make better diabetes treatment decisions. And if you have Medicare, you can get a new CGM at little or no out-of-pocket cost. Plus, get free shipping and we'll bill your insurance company for you. Call now to receive your new continuous glucose monitor at little or no out-of-pocket cost. Paid for by U.S. Medical Supply. Call 800-556-9015. That's 800-556-9015. Again, 800-556-9015. That's 800-556-9015.